Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Continuing our journey through Exodus, we... Um, before Easter, we covered, I think, eight chapters in three weeks. We're just doing 16 verses today, so we're slowing down quite a bit. When we get to the chapter on the Ten Commandments, we'll be in that chapter for ten weeks. So we go at different paces through this book um, because of how it's structured. Um, today we'll be in Exodus 13. Think to yourself, what's your favorite holiday? I narrowed mine to my top five excluding my anniversary, since that's sort of a holiday, but not exactly. It would probably be on this list if I were to count it, but I'm in no particular order. My top five favorite holidays are Christmas, because it's just a wonderful time of the year, as the song says. Thanksgiving, because I love to eat, and the feast is wonderful. Um, Easter, because um, it's the joy of the resurrection. I love to sing in church, and I really love singing resurrection hymns. Um, New Year's Day, because it's a new beginning, you can always you always got a lot of gusto to start new things on New Year's Day, and then May the Fourth. Most of you don't know why, because it's Star Wars Day. It's May the Fourth be with you. <laughs> um, the point of holidays are to remember important events, either in the life of faith or in the life of a nation. For the people of Israel, that was one and the same. When we get Later into Exodus, we'll actually look at all their holidays because it's kind of all clumped together at one part. But um, here we see a special celebration that God sets up in light of the fact that they've just come out of Egypt in the Exodus. Having just been delivered, God gives them instructions on how to remember and celebrate what God did for them on an annual basis. We call this the Passover celebration. Just as we like to say every day is Christmas, often we'll say that, you know, you should celebrate the birth of Christ, but really you should remember that every day. Well, this was the Jewish Christmas. This is the big holiday for them. Every day for them is Passover. It's a remembrance of what God did for them. So let's read Exodus 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Hivites... And the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. 
Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen within, with, with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt." You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into this land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and, as, and to your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. God gives them two, kind of, two, two things to do. The first is verses 1 through 10. The second is 11 through 16. First and foremost, they have a seven-day festival to keep in light of the fact that they have been redeemed out of Egypt. Egypt. Um, and it's actually verse 1 probably goes along with what is in verses 11 through 16, but, but let's consider verse 1 and 2. Consecrate the firstborn. Consecrate the firstborn. Everything that first opens the womb, human and beast, is the Lord's, he says. Your firstborn kid and every animal that you own, he says, it's mine. You consecrate, that is, you dedicate them to the Lord. It is God's will it is God's will to do with that firstborn whatever he wishes. That's what he tells Israel. They belong to him. He's giving them that up front. That is countercultural to the time. In the time, the firstborn was your prize child. All your family's ambitions were bound up in your firstborn child. And this is God telling the Israelites, put your hope in me, not in your firstborn. Christian parents different than the world. We don't pass on the world's values to our kids. We don't raise our kids the same way someone who doesn't follow Christ does. There are things that are more important that we put forth in parenting. So examine your own parenting. Is your parenting any different than the world's? Well, of course, I spank my kids. So do a lot of non-Christian parents. Are you parenting your kids in such a way where your kids are being directed to Christ rather than to their own wishes, their own selves. Have you dedicated your children to Christ truly? I'm not necessarily talking about bringing them up front and me praying over them. We do that, but, but have you in your heart and in your family dedicated your children to Christ? Or are you still holding on to them in your grip? I read yesterday in my devotional time, um, 1 Samuel 1-7. through 7. I had some free time yesterday, and I just wanted to read, so I hit seven chapters. And I read 1 Samuel 1-7. through 7. And in 1 Samuel 1-7, through 7, um, you, you see the story of Hannah, of Hannah. 
she, she asked the Lord, she's barren, she asked the Lord for a child and says she will dedicate him to the Lord. She'll actually, she says, I'll leave him at the temple, the temple will raise him and he'll grow up in, before the Lord and he'll be a priest. And that's what she does. She gets pregnant finally and she takes that child and leaves him at the temple. The thing she wants more than anything, she gives to the Lord to use and it ends up being Samuel, her son, the one who calls David to be king. Um, that's what she does. Now, that's not prescriptive of how every parent should do. Please don't drop your baby off at my office and expect me to keep up with them. <laughs> but the point is, she didn't have the grip on her child the, the way that our world does. She let God have control of her child. Your kids don't belong to you. You understand that, right? This flies in the face of what Pharaohs believe and in the face of what our world believes. Pharaoh believed the firstborn belonged to him, just like everything else in his kingdom. He's the one in charge, and God showed him you're wrong. I'm actually the one in charge of your firstborn. Your kids don't belong to you. God made them. You are ambassadors to Christ to your kids. God gave them to you for a season. And what you own doesn't belong to you. Everything you have actually belongs to God. Everything. Everything. He's given it to you to steward it. He owns it. He's let you use it. You, because you don't own it, you don't get ultimate authority over it. He does. So he calls you to recognize that and consecrate it to show you truly believe that. So what do you do? What, what do they do? What, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to practice, they're remembering the Passover, they're remembering the Exodus, so they're supposed to practice the seven-day celebration that takes place, and he tells them about it in verses 3 through 7. It's what's come to be known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's remembering the Passover. Israelites are told to remember what God did for them, what he did. This is meant to be a reminder of the Exodus. And he says, do it every year. Because we will forget, he says. Do it because you'll forget what I did for you in Egypt. And we know they eventually do. We, we forget what God did. We forget who we are. If by nothing else, we forget what God did. If by nothing else, then that the generation that was alive when this happens dies out and the next generation doesn't remember because they weren't there. Kind of the same as... Um, so, so do you realize, um, so Adrian and I, as you know, do a lot with college students, and do you realize that pretty much every college-aged student today was born after 9-11? Does that make you feel old? It does me. Every college-aged student today was born after 9-11 happened. Every year I see people post things on Facebook about how we don't need to forget 9-11, and I agree. But someday nobody will be alive that was here when that happened. If you, aren't, if you weren't alive, it doesn't have the impact that seeing it on TV did. The same that most of us don't think very much about the bombing of Pearl Harbor because we weren't alive when it happened. We know it happened, but we don't think much about it. We forget. We forget things so easily. So God memorializes what happened for the, for the Israelites so they won't forget it. So they'll be regularly reminded of it. For Passover, that, that is, it's a seven-day feast that they're going to celebrate. And they're not going to eat unleavened bread. They're only going to eat unleavened bread. Um, 
as you'll see in verses 3 through 7. Um, eat unleavened bread only. That bread they ate the night of Passover, you remember um, God told them to sacrifice a lamb, eat it, eat it with unleavened bread. Unleavened because they're going to cook this meal, and about the time it gets done, um, Pharaoh's going to kick them out of Egypt, so they're going to be eating it quick. So the bread they would have eaten that night would have been unleavened because it wouldn't have had time to you know, sit for a while. And so the bread they're going to eat here is unleavened to remind them of that. They're going to eat it for seven days to remember. And that's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. We're talking about one week out of the year they eat unleavened bread. So unleavened bread is not appetizing. I don't know if you've ever eaten it, but it's not. It's not very good. In high school, um, the, the church, my home church, when they do the Lord's Supper, um, they don't use the little crackers that we do. They, they actually bake bread for it. They bake bread, and they break it up into little pieces and put it in the little plate, and um, they pass that around during the Lord's Supper. And so one night, I was there on a Sunday night um, taking the Lord's Supper, and I ate this bread, and I'm like, huh, that's some good bread. So I got the crazy idea. I'll make some when I get home. So I go home, and I love to cook now. I didn't cook much then. So I go home. I get the flour pot, scoop out some flour, put it in a bowl, put some water in it, mix it up, pull it out. Put it on a pan, put it in the oven. Let it cook, take it out, take off a piece. I must not have the right recipe. I'm missing something. I must have done something wrong. It's not appetizing right out of the oven like that. It's just not. But that's unleavened bread. It's meant to remind them what God did at the Passover. It's meant to remind them. So what would be the equivalent of the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the Christian? Because obviously this is a Jewish festival. This is something we don't keep. This is something we don't do because we're not expected to. Um, we're we're um, a New Testament community. The, the, the specific ceremonies of the Old Testament we don't follow because Christ fulfilled them. So what would be the equivalent of this for a Christian? Well, you might think to yourself, Christmas and Easter. But actually not really. Not really. Did you know the Bible never actually commands us to celebrate Christmas or Easter? The, the Bible never commands us to annually celebrate the birth of Christ. That doesn't mean it's wrong to do it. It just means that there's no passage that says, remember Christ's birth every year. Actually, Christians didn't celebrate Christmas until the 300s. Jesus died 33-ish A.D., 31, 33, somewhere around there. Um, it wasn't until the 300s that Christians started celebrating his birth every year. The Emperor Constantine put that celebration in place. Christians for the first 300 years didn't celebrate Christmas. And technically we're commanded to celebrate the resurrection, but not once a year. We do it on the Lord's Day. That's when we remember the resurrection in the Bible. That's the only holiday given to the church in the Bible, the Lord's Day, Sunday. Every Sunday is a holiday for Christians in the sense the, close, the closest equivalent to remembering the Passover in the New Testament is gathering with the body of Christ on the Lord's Day, what we're doing right now. This is our Passover celebration, what we're doing right this second. So do not neglect this. Do not neglect this. Someone might say, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I mean, technically, no. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. There's no works that you do to be saved. Well, I don't have to go home to be married. I don't have to go to my house tonight. To I'm not going to suddenly not be married if I don't go to my house tonight. I'm married because I made a vow on May 27, 2017. But you can bet my marriage won't thrive if I never go home. 
You can bet my marriage is going to be in shambles if I never go home. I just want you to consider what's wrong with your soul that you can so easily disobey a simple command from Jesus to gather with his people and it not bother you, if that's you. Like, we're not talking about, like, giving your firstborn child to the temple here. We're talking about taking an hour out of your week to gather with God's people. Hebrews 10.25, don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. That's a command in Scripture we're to obey. This gathering that we do every week is meant to remind us what God has done for us. Because we forget. We forget. When we sing the hymns that we do, it's the truth being preached to our ears so that we can remember. When I preach, I'm reminding you what God has done from his word so you remember. When we do a baptism, we're seeing what God does. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when we fellowship, we remind ourselves that Jesus has built a resurrection community in the church. But it requires sacrifice. I said it's a simple command, but it it does require sacrifice to be here regularly. It means getting up early on Sunday morning, which is probably one of your days off from work. It, it'll mean rethinking how you do life. It might mean telling your kids' ball teams, hey, we're not going to be there on Sunday. We're not going to be there. They can practice another time. It might mean not living a lifestyle where you're on vacation every weekend at St. Simon's. Or if you do, come back Saturday night. You know, yeah miss a Sunday or two a year for vacation, that's fine. But, but missing 20 Sundays a year for vacation is something different. There's something wrong there. If you work on Sundays, it might mean coming on Wednesday nights or Sunday nights, finding, being creative, finding when you're going to gather with God's people because you know you need it and you know God commands it. But that's all inconvenient. Yes, so was eating unleavened bread for a week. The question you ask yourself is, is the Lord worth being inconvenienced for? Why do we do it? Verse 8 through 10. Why do they do this? Why do they do this feast where they eat unleavened bread for seven days? Why? Well, he gives it a reason to tell people in verses 8 through 10. You shall tell your son on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And, and it's meant to be a, a memorial to them in that way. Why do we do this? Is, is it just some empty ritual? No. It's telling a story. It's reminding us. It's showing the coming generation what's important. This festival is meant to teach the rising generation what God did for Israel so they don't forget it because they will forget it. There must be teaching that goes into this festival. They can't just do this and expect it to just do the job. They can't just have the, the ceremony and think that's going to do the job. Because we know, don't we, that all of America celebrates Christmas every year and very few of them acknowledge the birth of Jesus. Because just doing the festival without teaching what the festival means is not going to do the job. He gives instructions here. The older ones have to teach what this means to the younger. Why do they do it? And that's where Israel failed. That's why in the coming generations they would practice this stuff but not know its meaning. That, that's why in the days of Jesus they were just blindly following the Pharisees and never thinking about why they were doing the things that they were doing. You know something that's very true about the rising generation in our country? They want to know why. They want to know why. Why do we do this? Why do we do that in church? They don't just want to be told that this is what you do, you do it. No, they want to know why do we do that. 
And you've got to be able to answer that. You've got to be able to answer those questions so that they see the reason for doing it in the future when you're gone. Adrian and I see this a lot when we talk to college students. They're, they're filled with questions. I love it. I wish adults asked as many questions as college students do. Something about when you reach adulthood, you stop being curious for some reason. Um, recently, what one of those students was talking to us about baptism, asking us about it. She, grew up in a, she didn't grow up in a Baptist church. Um, she asked, um, what's the significance of getting baptized in an actual church building? Why does that have to be the case? Can you answer that question? Because some may point out that there's really no Bible passage that says that you have to be baptized in a church building. You bring it all together, you bring together all that Scripture says about baptism, and the answer would be that Scripture teaches you should be baptized in the presence of a local church, a congregation of Christians. That may be in that baptistry back there. That may be out in a pond at your farm. If the church is gathered there, that may be in this creek over here and somewhere that way, over on Windmill Road. That may be at a swimming pool in someone's backyard. I mean, but, but is the church gathered to see the baptism? The congregation should be gathered. A parent shouldn't baptize their child privately in the pool at the Holiday Inn while they're on vacation. Um, I heard recently about a church um, somewhere in the United States that set up a cow trough outside their building very evangelistic church. They've been encouraging their members to evangelize, share the gospel with people in their life, which we say awesome, keep doing that. But they would encourage their people, when someone, when you lead someone to Christ in your life, bring them by the church building and just baptize them in the front yard. Just do it whenever. They've baptized a ton of people in the last year, but they're doing it wrong because the church isn't gathered for it. Baptism is a public proclamation of what has happened. It's also an initiation into church membership. It's not a private event. It's a public event. It's meant to be done in the presence of a congregation, a local church. You've got to be able to answer things like that to the coming generation. If you don't have an answer for why, do you think they're going to continue on with the what? They're not going to buy into it. What do you think you teach the coming generation if you neglect coming to church? What do you think someone teaches the coming generation if they neglect that? Well, under normal circumstances, your kids are always going to be less committed to something than you are. So this is how it works. The first generation, really committed to church. They're super committed. Um, they are here every Sunday. They serve. They're involved in all the activities. They're, they're committed to the mission of the church. The second generation, if nothing is really passed on to the next generation, the second generation attends, but they're half-hearted. They're half-hearted. They are here every week, but they really don't do a ton. They're just kind of here. They come here because their parents saw it as important, and so they're going to see it as important. The third generation comes for Christmas and Easter. Maybe they pop in one or two other times, but they come Christmas and Easter. The fourth generation never comes to church, but they call themselves Christians because Grandpa was. And the fifth generation has no knowledge of God whatsoever, and they die and go to hell. That's what happens as the generation passes on if you don't tell them why we do what we do. This is what happens naturally. But it can be changed if the current generation is proactive in passing on the faith to the next generation and recognizing their part in this. Left to itself, everything gets out of hand over time. If, if you never take care of your yard, it'll be a wilderness. But if you get out there and work on it, it'll look nice. And the same is true with your family. 
So if, if what I'm saying speaks to you, if this is who you are, are you willing to repent and be proactive in leading your family to faithfulness to Jesus and all that he commands? Ask that question of yourself this morning. You must practice the rituals God has left for us to do. I know there's a big move today for us to abandon ritual and tradition so we can freely worship God in the spirit. We, we do need to abandon um, our worship of traditions and our resistance to change the, in the church. And we must differentiate between what, what traditions and rituals God has set up and what are just the opinion of man that we're not bound to. But like it or not, God gives rituals and traditions for how to worship him. You can't just wing it and expect it to go right. That's the first part. The second part's shorter. It's, it's, the first part was the seven-day festival. 11 through 16 is the redemption of the firstborn. It's tied in with verses 1 and 2. A lot of this that we've talked about here in verses 1 through 10, it starts at home. It starts at home. Your church life is a pretty good indication of your life life. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said, if you do not worship God seven days a week, you won't worship him one day a week. If you will not worship God seven days a week, you won't worship him one day a week. Church is a good litmus test for what your life in Christ is actually like. If you rarely come to church, you probably give little thought to Jesus in your life. If you come to church regularly, but you look like you'd rather be getting a root canal when you're here, that's probably a level, that's probably a sign of how much joy you have in Jesus. But if you're joyful at church, that's a picture of your soul. There had to be more commitment to these people than just this seven-day festival because they could, they could do this seven-day festival and check it off and then the other 51 days, 51 weeks of the year just you know, do whatever. They, they could do that. They couldn't just attend that seven-day festival and then go out about their lives. God expects their whole lives. That's where he brings it in in 11 through 16. This is why it's saddening that there are what we call CEO Christians. You know what CEO Christians are? Christmas and Easter only, CEO. Maybe they show up on Mother's Day, but they check the box on Christmas and Easter and maybe Mother's Day, and then they go about their business. Like God is just a task to be completed. He's not. So what does he tell them to do here? Verses 11 and 12. Um, he, he says that you, when you come into the land, you set apart, you consecrate your firstborn of your children and your animals the first fruit of your womb. You give Christ first place in your life. Essentially, the things that, that, that have first place in your life belong to the Lord, he says. He's the first in your life. Not your money, not your job, not your hobbies, not even your family. You give first place in your life to him. They're asked to give their first to God because those first fruits of the womb represent the first place in their life. This is the whole concept behind tithing. Why do we tithe? Well, you get your paycheck, and you take 10% out immediately, and you give it to the church, and you live off 90%. That's how it works. You don't stop there with your generosity, but you're showing God that he has first priority in your life, showing that you depend on him. So how do you do this? He says it in verse 13. How are they to consecrate the firstborn? Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. They're told to redeem their firstborn. How? By sacrificing a lamb. It's all tied up in remembering the Passover. What did they do on the Passover? They sacrificed a lamb to save their firstborn. 
And the Passover points ahead to the lamb that was sacrificed on our behalf. The only way you will ever have God first in your life is if you are redeemed by the lamb. I want you in church. You need to be in church for your growth and your spiritual nourishment, but you could be in church every Sunday and have not surrendered your life to the lamb, not have his blood covering you. So where are you with Jesus? Where are you with Jesus? Do you have peace with God through Jesus? Has he redeemed you, as the passage says, redeem means to buy back. Think, think of the story of Hosea um, going, his wife getting sold into um, prostitution. He goes and buys her back. He redeems her. Has he bought you back from this world? Do you still belong to this world or do you belong to him? If you belong to him, he will be first in your life. That will be the sign of it. So have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your hope in his death on the cross for your sins? Have you left your nets behind and come to follow him? If you have, you're redeemed, he says. But then the question is, is there an area of disobedience in your life? Is there a step of obedience you haven't followed through on? Have you never been baptized or not baptized properly? Have you never joined the church in covenant membership? Have you, are you still living in a sin that you know you need to repent of, but you haven't left behind? Are you not stepping up to serve where you know you should be? Are you involved in any kind of discipleship, be it Sunday school or something else? Where is he not first in your life? Would you rectify that today? Because if you're truly his, he will be first in your life. Why do we do it? Verses 14 through 16. If you won't do this, at least do it for your kids and grandkids. You may be content to be a pretty mediocre Christian, but don't do that to your kids and grandkids. You're so concerned for the next generation in this country, yet you won't do much to help change the trajectory of the next generation because complaining is easy. Doing something's hard. It takes work. There is an explanation given to the kids in verses 14 through 16, just like there was in verses 8 through 10 for why they do this. Why do they sacrifice a lamb? They sac the sacrifice is at the forefront. It must be the forefront of your life as well. Our great hope as Christians is not in family values or in Southern hospitality or in the Second Amendment or in our love of our country or even in church attendance. It's in the sacrifice of the lamb. You must keep that at the center of your home. The lamb of God, sacrifice is going to be the driving influence of your home. I'm going to make sure my kids know that Jesus died for them. That's a whole lot more important than anything else I tell them that is important. We make our lives about passing on that message and giving our lives to people believing that message. It's the only thing that transforms, the only thing. So that's why we do what we do right now. It's something like a weekly holiday reminding us of that great message because we will forget. We will forget. So do you know what my favorite holiday really is? not Christmas. It's not Thanksgiving. I could eat that food anytime. For some reason, we don't. It's not New Year's. I can have a fresh start anytime if I choose to. It's not even May the 4th. Star Wars is an ultimate. It's the Lord's Day. That's my favorite holiday. The Lord's Day is our feast of unleavened bread. It's the day we remember what God did for us. We don't celebrate it once a year. We celebrate it every week. So ask yourself, do you neglect this time? You need this for the good of your soul. So consecrate your heart to the Lord and know that what we're doing right now 
is a good indication of where you're at with Jesus outside of this building. Think on that today. May, may, may that grip your heart all afternoon, and may you find the places you're falling short in your life and repent. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you that as we gather today, so is all your church around the world, gathering to remember what Jesus did for us, gathering to sing his praises, gathered to hear his preached word, gathered even to see baptisms and do the Lord's Supper, gathered to pray, gathered to fellowship. Lord, we do this every week as a memorial to what you did for us, to remind us of the truth because we so easily forget. We forget, Lord. As I prayed earlier, you are a faithful God and we are completely unfaithful and we forget how faithful you are. Remind us this morning, Lord. Remind us. And as we feast on the unleavened bread of your word, may we be reminded of your goodness and may we know the sacrifice of the lamb. May that be our hope. May that be our joy. May that be all that we have, Lord. I pray that you would Um, sanctify us this morning, help each person here to examine their life and see are they walking with Jesus faithfully. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'll be here at the front. If you have a decision to make or if you want to pray or if you want to talk or anything, I'll be here to receive you at the front as we sing. Page 249 as you stand. 249, Jesus paid it all.